Hey everyone, welcome back to Adherent Apologetics. Super pumped to join us today to have Dr. J.P. Moreland from Biola University. We've been talking about his new book, Experiencing Miracles. So Dr. Moreland, thank you so much. How are you today? Well, I'm doing well, Zach, and thanks for uh, having me on. Yeah, I'm super pumped. So we're going to be talking about your new book that's coming out with Zondervan, and it's about experiencing miracles, looking at like what they are, questions surrounding them, and all kinds of things related to the supernatural. So before we get into it, Dr. Moreland, you want to talk about a little bit about who you are and what you do? Well, I'm a distinguished professor of philosophy at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. Uh, I have uh, written a number of books and uh, spoken or debated on about 200 college campuses and in about 500 churches in the last 50 years. And uh, I'm a professional philosopher that also has a heart for uh, spiritual uh, formation and spiritual growth. So I try to combine those two. That's super cool. So what got you interested in the topic of writing a book about like experiencing miracles? Because this book isn't just academic, though you do engage with a lot of like different arguments and whatnot. It's also very like pastoral and looking at specific issues. So what got you interested in writing about this topic? Well, when I first became a Christian in the 60s, <clears throat> I read the New Testament and Old Testament and it looked like God acted in the world. But I was told, well, no, uh, you know, he did that in those days. And he still does it once in a while. So I, I kind of lost my expectation of seeing the supernatural, though, lo and behold, I actually saw miraculous answers to prayer and knew some people who were healed. But uh, I went to Dallas Seminary and they're more of a uh, seminary that says that, you know, miracles are few today. But I, I just didn't believe that. And so what happened is I began to do research on this. And I found out from rereading the book of Acts and, and, and the church fathers up until the 400s that there were three things that were central to the disciples and the early church's mind in building believers. One, cultivating a Christian mind, learning why you believe and, and what you believe. Second, discipleship practices to produce a, a Christ-like character. And third, uh, the manifestation of kingdom power through signs and wonders. And they were all three of equal importance. And um, I, I began to see uh, that miracles were happening, literal miracles in my church. And uh, I wanted to, to write a book that set the record straight because atheists say, well, these things don't happen very often. And they're always among people that aren't very well educated. And that's just not true. They're happening all over the world every day. So in the book, I document five different kinds of miracles. And I have about 50 cases that I stake my reputation on. I vetted them very carefully. And I would they're true. Uh, and uh, I also tie this in with some practical advice about how to grow in your expectation, why God doesn't answer prayer. I give about 14 reasons for why that happens, too, because we all know that God sometimes just doesn't seem to show up. So so the purpose, in summary, is to build Christians' closeness to God by experiencing his presence uh, more often through uh, miraculous actions on their behalf. And uh, to encourage them to be bold that Christianity is actually true and God is an active being who is still doing things all over the world. That's one of the things I really appreciate about your book is looking at 
miracles happening just all around the world and diving into a few different cases. I remember I was reading Craig Keener's book on miracles, which is a lot larger than yours, obviously. And I just remember talking with a friend about it. I'm like, yeah, I just read this every night and it's just, I read 10 pages and there's just a bunch of miracles and it's just the same old, same old, um, almost like in a bad sense, just because I'm like, there's just so much happening here and so many reports. That's why I'm grateful for your book is because it's very like short and accessible. So I just wanted to bring that up because I think it's helpful to think about like miracles aren't just like a few people here and there, but this is a very common phenomena. Is that something you'd agree with with regards Absolutely. to like, miracles? Occurring? Absolutely. There's a, there's just such a misunderstanding, uh, especially in Western culture that, you know, they just, they don't happen very often, but I discovered that this is quite the opposite. What the reason we think they don't happen very often is because when they do, we don't talk about it to one another. It's one of the big lessons in my book is that witnessing in the book of Acts is not just to tell about the gospel, though that's central. It also involves telling people what you've seen and heard God do. And it, it is extremely strengthening to realize the real fact of the matter is that in our churches, these four or five kinds of miracles are happening fairly regularly to about 80% of the people. I take polls but people think they're not because they don't they don't want to appear too super spiritual or they think people are will think they're kind of crazy. So they just keep it to themselves. And my book is an attempt to facilitate people sharing these things. <clears throat> That's super helpful. So one of the things you dive into at the beginning of this book is the idea of like the West being very almost embarrassed by miracle stories. So could you talk a little bit about Dr. Munn? Like, why do you think that's the case? Well, I think that we have slowly uh, absorbed in the drinking water the worldview of naturalism. And that is the idea that the hard sciences are really the only authority that we have uh, when we are trying to know reality. Uh, everything else, you can believe it or feel deeply about it or, or just choose to blindly accept it. But nobody can really know one way or another if God is real or life after death is real or what have you. And um, so as a result, uh, they want to try to de-supernaturalize the Bible as much as possible to make it palatable to sort of naturalized society and a naturalized church. Now, Christians wouldn't admit they've been naturalized, and I'm not saying they don't believe in the Lord or anything like that, but their daily practices indicate that they really have bought bought the ranch and drunk the Kool-Aid on this. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think that's a, a pretty good reason why in the West, this has sort of not been as received as, as well as people in other cultures who have a very supernatural worldview. Why do you think this is like, so we obviously have the enlightenment, which is a big deal in terms of like, taking out like the idea of like a supernatural aspect of reality but there's also like i remember like we're reading keener's book like people he talks about people like i believe cicero uh who lived like around like a little before like the time of christ who have this like very idea that like we just can't believe miracle stories that people that are maybe like looking that are like gullible or just trying to look for like maybe like god's like favor like these are the kinds of people here that are claiming to have these miracle stories like how do you think we can overcome this kind of like a priori like skepticism we have towards miracles well, one one quick thing about Cicero and those in the in, in the in the New Testament era and before, um, it was actually believed that that it would be an embarrassment to God to perform a miracle. 
or the gods, because that would indicate that they didn't design things right in the first place. Hmm. And, and so when the New Testament proclaims miracles in, in the Greek, Greco-Roman culture, people, that that was a disadvantage. That wasn't an advantage. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so so but I think that what we can do is that we can um, share honestly the things that have happened to us. And in, in the book, and I, I'm not trying to sell a book here, but you need to read books on this question. And mine is a good place to start. But in the bibliography, I list a whole bunch of books that I take are credible, that report things that God is miraculously doing and uh, the demonic and the angelic. And, and when you get confident about those things, you can begin to share them with people uh, without, uh, it, with an honest demeanor and with a real sense of confidence. And so if we start talking about this more uh, and do it intelligently, it's going to help. One more thing, Zach. I, I have in there uh, eight different ways that a person can grow in their faith and expectation for the miraculous. One of them is start asking Christians, you know, and people in your Sunday school class or, or your church or whatever group you're a part of. Start asking the question, have you ever seen God do something, answer a prayer that could not have been coincidence, it was miraculous, or heal someone that you know, or ever had God speak to you in a way that you were confident and, and, and something came true. And you will be shocked uh, at, at what happened. I had a, there was a, a young lady that read the book. So she tried this in her Bible study and there were about seven people. <clears throat> well, she thought it was gonna, gonna flop. Every single person in that room had two or three stories to share that were just unbelievable. And the meeting went on at about an hour and a half longer than normal because people were sharing so much they had to stop. But no one knew it because nobody talked about it. And so I think that's one way. I, there, there are other ways, but I'll just stop with that one. I will emphasize, like, that's a great idea, Dr. Moreland. That's something I've done in my own life. And it's amazing, you know, like the things people have had that's happened to them. And it's a very common occurrence. We just oftentimes don't realize it. So that's right. my next question then for you, Dr. Moreland, is looking at the question of like, how can we recognize miracles? So what's your take on this topic? That's a great question, Zach. Uh, thanks for answering, asking that. Um, I want to start with science. Um, uh, Certain fields of science, like forensic science, archaeology, uh, linguistics, uh, SETI, uh, and uh, some other, a couple of other branches of science, uh, are trying to find ways to tell the difference between an, a, an effect that's caused by natural processes, like a trees being split is an effect caused by a flash of lightning. So there's no personal agency involved in that versus uh, the dining room table being set in a certain way uh, because we're having our Chinese neighbors over, not our Mexican friends. And that you can't explain why the table's there like that by the laws of nature. My, you have to appeal to an agent, an intelligent agent who chose freely for a purpose to, to set that thing up. And so in the sciences, uh, they've developed a principle 
that is called either the intelligent agent principle or intelligent design principle. And Zach, just about two months ago, this was actually used uh, for, with anthropologists who there was a cave that they knew Neanderthals had lived in. But there was a formation on the cave that there was a debate about whether it was a natural formation that was just kind of done by chance or mm -hmm. if the Neanderthals drew it. And they applied the principle I'm going to share with you. And it is now almost universally agreed and published in a journal that these this was done intentionally. The, the cause was an agent that, di that did this formation purposefully. Now, the principle is this. If if. If two conditions are met, then you can know beyond any reasonable doubt, because there are very few false positives, that what the event or, or the phenomenon you're studying was brought about by the action of an intelligent agent. And the first one is this. The, the, the event or the phenomenon has to be highly improbable. Uh, so, but, but that's not enough because if you and I played bridge and uh, you and I were the only ones playing and we had a $500 kitty we were playing for and I get a perfect, I, I'm the dealer, but I deal myself a perfect bridge hand on the first deal. Uh, th that's going to raise suspicion because that's highly improbable, but your hand is every bit as improbable as mine, but your hand doesn't raise any suspicion. Uh, because there's nothing interesting about your hand. Uh, but if somebody predicted your hand would be exactly those numbers ahead of time, now that would have been pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. so, so, so the improbability has got to be one factor, but the second one is this. The, the, the phenomenon has to have special significance besides the fact that it happened. Mm -hmm. Now think about your hand. There's no significance to it at all, except it was the hand you got. In fact, the way to describe it is you some hand or other that Zach was dealt. My hand, however, isn't just some hand or other that JP was dealt. There's something special about this particular hand that is according to the rules of Ridge before we even sat down. Namely, anybody who gets that hand is a winner. It's the combination of improbability and that specialness that demonstrates that I cheated. Now, now it was done in purpose by me, and it wasn't just a lucky coincidence. Now, this was actually applied years ago to uh, by the Democrats who sued the Republicans and used this principle and won the, the court case. In the state of Ohio, there were, I think, eight uh, congressional districts voting for the state house uh, uh, elections. And there were about seven or eight candidates running in each of those districts. Well, the ballots were printed and distributed. And lo and behold, on all eight districts, the Republican candidate was first and the other seven candidates were in random order. Now, <clears throat> that is highly unlikely for that to happen. Mm -hmm. But but if you had uh, some random order that was reproduced in every one of the ballots, that could have just been a coincidence. But what what won the court case is that not only was it improbable, but there was something special about it. And here's what it was. 
We know that whoever is listed first on a ballot gets more votes just because they're first. And the Republican, a Republican was in charge of printing the ballots. So he wanted the Republican candidates to win and had a vested interest in putting them first. So it was the improbability plus the fact that this result was special that indicated to the court that this was cheating and done on purpose by the, the ballot producer. Apply that to prayer. If you have a highly improbable thing happen uh, and it's exactly what you had been praying for, then you have specialness and improbability. And that indicates it was done on purpose by a, a great big agent, <laughs> God in this case. So that's the application to miracles of a secular principle used in science. And it's it's very reliable. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's super helpful looking at the two like circumstances you have of those being improbability and then a, like something that's almost like a rare occurrence or something that like some sort, well, not a rare occurrence, but there's some sort of like reason undergirding it that would be like why this improbability may benefit somebody. Um, so that's really helpful and I appreciate that. It's really good. So I'd love to talk then here, Dr. Mullen, about this idea of how can we talk about like some experiences that of Sorry, I lost my train of thought. I was thinking about, um, but what are some examples of miraculous answers to prayer? Because in your book, you talk about yes. five, you said. So what's going on here? And I find these always super encouraging to hear. Yeah. I, oh, absolutely. Well, I, first of all, I list five different kinds of supernatural events. And I, I have vetted cases of each. I give some teaching about these things and some practical ways to grow in them. So the book has got a lot of practical application, but the five kinds of supernatural events are specific answers to prayer, miraculous healing, hearing God speak to you in five or six ways outside, but under the authority of the Bible, uh, angelic or demonic manifestations, and then near-death experiences. Now, it, with regard to the first type, a uh, um, a, an example would be uh, when I first joined Campus Crusade staff in, in 1970, uh, in, in 1971, I was stationed in Golden, Colorado, and I had learned that when we pray, we ought to be specific. And so I had asked the Lord, uh, I was in a, a conference in California, and I was driving back, and I put in my journal, Lord, when I get back there, I've got to find a, how, a place to live for my roommate and me. We're working at Golden, this Colorado School of Mines. Would you find us a little white house with a, a nice white picket fence around it with a nice grassy front yard uh, about a cup, about two miles from campus? And we can't afford anything more than uh, one hundred and ten dollars, one hundred fifteen dollars a month. And I wanted that because it would give us a place for students to, to come and visit. Well, I, I got there, I looked for two days, and I looked at probably 15 places. There was nothing at all in Golden. I finally mm -hmm. found a place in about 11 miles away in Denver, but the manager said somebody had taken it, so I was at ground zero. I got a call from a staff member named Kaylin Fenner, and she said, look, I don't know if you're looking for a place to live with Ray, but uh, I was at Denver Seminary, and on the bulletin board, there's a pastor who wants to rent a place to some Christians. I call this guy and he says, well, meet me at nine o'clock tomorrow and gave me directions. And I pulled up to a white house with a white picket fence with a nice grassy front yard two two 2.1 miles from campus, something like that, $110 a month. And it was a specific answer to prayer. Now, let me give you another one. Um, two people in our church 
Bill and Ruth Henderson are just godly, godly fun people. And I've known mm -hmm. them for 30 years and they just have a reputation as being mature, stable believers. Well, uh, several years ago, uh, there, uh, uh, um, Ruth's parents had been on the mission field for decades working among poor uh, uh, Hispanic speaking people. And they did not have any, re they retired. They had no uh, savings uh, to speak of. So they came to America and they uh, were renting an apartment in north of uh, San Diego. Um, the wife was teaching elementary school and the husband was helping to plant and nurture Hispanic churches for free. So they had very little income. But they, they, they had like, a, I don't know, $2,000 saved. They knew absolutely nothing about real estate or anything like that. But the wife had a deeply burdened heart that she wanted a house to live in. They'd never lived in a house. And they were at the retirement age. And so she said, um, she told the family, would you pray that God would have let us live in a house? Well, she got a realtor and they, they, they looked at, several houses one day, but they found one house that was empty. The people had already left out, moved. And, and they looked at it for about 30 minutes. And uh, the wife said, uh, this is the house I want. Uh, well, the realtor said, how much do you have to put down? Well, $2,000. And she says, oh my gosh, that, that, that's not even close. Uh, and you're, how much do you make? You, you won't be able to make the payments. I mean, I'm sorry to tell you this, but you're not even in the ballpark here. Well, at that point, she was a little bit downtrodden, but someone knocked at the door and the realtor went to the door and two gentlemen were there and said, may we speak to the owner? And she said, well, the, the house is for sale, but this couple here is thinking about getting the house. So why don't you speak to them? And these two guys said, well, we are canvassing the neighborhood here and we we came to this house because we work for a cell phone company and if you would let us put two cell phone towers in your backyard and we'll make them look like palm trees mm -hmm. we will pay you uh uh ten thousand dollars a year and we'll give you 10 up front for 30 years wow. uh and that, that and, and they, they they were blown away and they were able to put that money down on the house, and they had the 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 month the the month the yearly expense was nine thousand six hundred dollars, and they were able to pay the house with this. And uh, they just finished the thirty years about two years ago, and hmm. the house has been paid off, and it was an uh, uh, the timing. I mean, if they those guys had come thirty minutes before, then they wouldn't have been there or thirty minutes after. Yeah. Uh, being there right when they were there, which and 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 offering this was just no question about it, improbable and met the specific prayer request they wanted. That mm. was an answer to prayer, dude. Mm. Praise God! It's so amazing, like hearing these stories and thinking about them. Right? And I love I love the criteria because it really helps me think about these things. The idea of improbability and then like a specific answer or something like this. Um, yep. It's really helpful for discerning these things. So. One question I have for you then, Dr. Moreland, with this is the question of, it's almost like called like divine psychology of like what God, would, what interest would God have in like doing these miracles? So we think about 
this idea of God who's like morally perfect, like he's omnipotent, he can do anything. Um, so like, why, why is he intervening, intervening in like scenarios, like maybe like your case or your friend's case or, um, or in the cases of millions of people around the world, at least. So they claim it's like, what's, what, what's God, why is God doing this? Boy, Zach, you're asking such good questions. And, uh, in the book, I have an answer uh, for this. And what the way to answer it is you have to begin by asking the question, why did God create the universe and put us here? What, what's, what was the point of all that? Now, let me tell you what the point is not. The point is not for, for God throughout the beginning till the end of history in this earth, for God to accomplish the greatest amount of good and thwart the greatest amount of evil. Because if that were his purpose, then he would do good things for, for people, whether they asked him or not. And he would uh, defeat evil things, whether they asked him or not. But that's not his purpose. That he, he has a bigger purpose. And that bigger purpose is to form a community of people called the, the, the kingdom of God. And the church is part of that now to form a community of people throughout history who have freely and voluntarily chosen to enter and live in that community and then to mature them so God can co-labor with those people in order to stand against, uh, to spread his kingdom and to, to achieve goodness and truth and stand against falsehood and evil. So note carefully that if I wanted to accomplish some good things, but I wanted my daughters to be a part of that, then I might do things or refuse to do things unless they asked or participated, because having them be a part of it and grow from that is more important to me than just doing good things and thwarting evil. And so in our case, I think God wants us to work with him. Now, how do people work together? Well, the answer is they do it by th basically through talking and communicating. Well, prayer is a way of working with God. We talk and communicate with him in order to achieve things that wouldn't happen unless we asked. Uh, and so uh, the reason God has condescended to that arrangement, instead of just doing what whatever he wants to, to, to achieve goodness, is because he wants to mature a, a body of family of people that are co-laboring with him. And one way to do that is to answer prayers, uh, even, even as something as simple as a house, although God also answers dramatic prayers. And the reason is because that teaches people that it is important to keep working with God. Because you say, oh, goodness gracious, look what happened. I'm going to keep doing this. I'm going to step out. And it matures you in Christ. So I think that's why God does these things, uh, because he, he wants to build a group of people that have learned from experience and from his word to work with them and to be encouraged in their faith to keep taking risks for, for his kingdom. Mm. That's super encouraging. So thank you, Dr. Moreland. So another question I have for you then is this idea of you talk about in the book of like hearing God's voice outside the Bible, like especially as like evangelicals, we like think of the idea of like we hear God, we learn about God, like through the 
scriptures and to the word. Um, like, what are some ways? And obviously, like, I'm sure we all hold like to the reverence and authority of scriptures. But like, how can we hear God's voice outside of the scriptures in, in a way that's like relevant to like what we're talking about today? Yeah. Well, of course, the, it, 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 my view, the Bible is the ultimate authority. It is my uh, ultimate standard. Uh, so if I think God's speaking to me about becoming the best male prostitute I can be, uh, that's uh, that's not God. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So um, if anything contradicts the word, it's out. But if, it, if the Bible doesn't particularly speak on it, then I, 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 I follow uh, my confidence. And over the years, you learn how to discern God's voice. And God speaks in a variety of ways. And I illustrate each one of these. He will put a thought or a feeling in your mind that has a certain texture to it. Uh, he, he, will, he gives dreams uh, today still. Um, he uh, provides a word of knowledge to someone, and, and, and there are all kinds of ways. And I'll give you an example. I was at a conference uh, uh, in, in 1995, I think, uh, uh, speaking at Vanguard University. And they had a group of Asian Americans from about 30 states, about 130 or 140 of them, that were there for six weeks of training. And the people uh, running the uh, the, the the conference uh, were doing all the teaching except for that six week period. They had, I think, four or five outside speakers come in and speak for a couple of days. So I was there and I spoke on apologetics for Thursday morning, Thursday night, Friday morning, and then Friday night and Saturday morning. But Friday night I went and they were having worship. So I, I sat in the back and I said, Lord, is there anything that you would like me to say? And the thought came very clear to me, and it came like it was coming from outside of me through. He says, there is a young man here named Mike. Before he came, he was in a confrontation with his pastor, and he has blamed himself all summer for what happened. But it was not his fault. It was his pastor's fault. And he needs to confront his pastor about what he said and did in that meeting. And there are other people, there are some of my children here who are being demonized at night and they can't sleep because they're feeling darkness and it's dragging them down. And I want you to deliver them from the from demons. Now, I was about 70, 30. It was God. Uh, now, Zach, remember, when I interpret a biblical text and teach it, very seldom am I 100 percent sure that my interpretation is right, because often there are many different interpretations. And I'm, I will preach a passage if I'm 60, 40 or, or higher, even mm -hmm. if I'm not certain. I say, well, on balance, it's more reasonable to believe. So you don't have to be 100 percent sure it's God's voice. Uh, if you're 70, 30 or what have you, uh, then then you step out uh, unless it's a dramatic decision. and You just ask for more com uh, confirmation. Well, that night I spoke and when I was finished. I said, look, I, I, I sense the Lord may want me to say something. Notice I didn't say the Lord told me. I, I said, uh, I believe the Lord wants me to say something. There's a young man here named Mike, and I told the story. Now, I said, I want you to get into groups of three or four, if you would. And so all throughout the auditorium, they did. And I said, there are some of you that have been experiencing dark, almost demonic agitation at night, and you haven't slept for a long time. I, mm -hmm. I want you to all close your eyes, and I say now in the name of Jesus and based on the authority of his blood, I command any demon in this room to leave and not come back. You've got to go in Jesus' name. 
Holy Spirit, come and fill the place that has been vacated. And then I left. Uh, and it was about 1020. I looked at my watch. Well, I got there the next morning and the head of the conference uh, made a beeline toward the parking lot uh, to talk to me. And I thought, oh, no, I, I don't know. Maybe he was upset with what I did. And he said, do you know what happened last night? And I said, I have no idea. And he said, after you left, the, the Holy Spirit became so thick in the room that students stayed up until 2, 2.30 in the morning, confessing their sins to one another and weeping and crying out for God's mercy. And it was unbelievable. And he said, have you met Mike? And I said, there really is a Mike here? I said, I've never met a, a Korean-American named Mike. Are you kidding? No, he said, he's, in fact, he was right there. He wants to talk to you. He comes up and says, Dr. Moreland, with all due respect, how did you know that? And I said, well, I was 70, 30. I didn't really know it. And I said, well, tell me, what do you mean? And he said, well, I'm from New Jersey. And before I came here, my girlfriend and I went to see our senior pastor. He's a very godly man. But to be honest, he said some pretty rude and, 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 and some kind of demeaning things to me and my girlfriend. And we left the appointment and I just, we both felt kind of slimed. And I, but I said, well, it's got to be my fault because he is a man of God and I must have done something to alien, but I haven't been able to figure it out all summer and it's been agitating me. Now he said, what you don't know is that we have outside speakers besides you this summer. And my pastor is flying in today from New Jersey and he's going to speak here tomorrow morning. And the timing could not be more perfect because now I know that while he's here, I need to have a word with him. Well, I mean, that was just incredible. And then two women came up to me who were living, staying in different rooms and said, when you prayed that prayer last night, we felt a dark something leave us because we have had we haven't been able to sleep precisely like you said. And we slept last night like like babies and, and we were delivered. So that was a word of knowledge I got that I was 70, 30. And you can learn by experience. The more you take a risk, you just say the Lord seems to be saying. Mm -hmm. And you grow. And I have in the book, A Simple Guide to Experience Miracles. I have in there how to, to grow in discerning God's voice in these ways. And, I, mm -hmm. and the biblical basis for it and the whole, and the whole thing. That's super cool. And I have one more thing I want to talk to you about the book, Dr. Moreland, and I'll do a little bit of Q&A. Um, so if you have questions or comments related to like miracles or the supernatural or like NDEs, um, feel free to leave those in. But the last thing you talk about in your book is this idea of like near-death experiences. Yes. So can you talk a little bit about like what they are and how they play into like the story and the relevance of them when looking at like the idea of miracles? Well, yes. In, uh, in, uh, in studies in Germany and, and, and the United States, uh, uh, 14% of Americans have had near-death experiences. I mean, that's a pretty significant number. And across around the world, it's estimated through statistical research that there have been at least 300 million of these. So these are happening all over the place. And uh, they happen to little children who don't have any religious training. They happen to atheists uh, and and. Throughout the world, no matter what the culture is, there is a set of characteristics that they all have seem to have in common. Now, sometimes people will have an experience uh, that I take to be of Jesus Christ, but they don't know his name and they misinterpret the experience uh, and they interpret it in terms of the way they were raised. 
in the Old Testament, there were times when God appeared to people and did not tell them who he was or that he was God. So there's nothing mm -hmm. odd about this. And in fact, I in the book, I, I explain how these can't be explained naturalistically and uh, why they are consistent with the Bible. They are not contrary to the word of God. In fact, 80 to 80 to 90 percent of these are fully consistent with the biblical text. Uh, if you if you make allowance for a little bit of a difference in interpretation from from upbringing, but even then, so much of the experiences are the same. They did a study in India and they found a whole group of Indians who had experienced a, a bearded figure who had a book of judgment. And they, according to their theology, should have been annihilated and merged back with the one. But they had their personal identity and there was a judge that was judging them. And, it, you know, so these experiences are where people literally leave their body uh, and are clinically dead. And they are, in many cases, documented thoroughly and in the medical records, they are able to see things like what's going on down in the hospital cafeteria or what's what's up on the roof of the hospital or what's going on two doors down in the neonatal intensive care unit. I mean, there are all, a lot of these that they couldn't have known if it were just a physical loss of oxygen to the brain or what have you. There's no way to explain how they could know things that they come to know where they couldn't if they were if they were enclosed in their body and it was a purely naturalistic event. What this indicates is that that, that this isn't uh, death as in the Bible, which is final, but this is uh, a death that is this isn't a second chance. This is clinical death where the soul does leave the body. And so they are dead, but it's not a final death. This is a, a temporary situation. And uh, they, they, there's a heaven and there's a hell because a lot of these are hellish experiences. Hmm. It's super interesting, Dr. Mullen. I'm so grateful. So could you maybe talk a little bit maybe about like one particular case of an NDE that really seems to point towards um, like this idea of like, well, at least with like consciousness and whatnot, like there's something much more than like the physical processes going on here? Well, yeah. And not only is there consciousness, but there's a self or a soul mm. because consciousness doesn't float around on its own. It belongs to something. Thoughts have thinkers. Yeah. Uh, pains have a person that has the pain. So the soul is what leaves not just consciousness. And uh, there, there, it's it's very difficult. But there was one person, uh, this is reported by uh, uh, Chauncey Crandall, who is for decades has been the head of a cardiac uh, center in, in Florida, in Palm Beach, Florida. And, mm -hmm. uh, uh, he, and, and he has worked there for, I don't know, 25 years. And he's, he's the head of the thing. Well, he, he, there was this big 250 pound gang member that was brought in and had a thin, his, his heart muscle was thin. And so um, they were going to operate He's tattoos all over him. And, and so he, the, the nursing and other doctor was there and the team was ready and they put him under, put an IV in him. And um, d during the procedure, he coded, he died. And uh, the, the, People started running around uh, like chaos, although it was organized, but to a viewer who doesn't know it was chaotic. And uh, one of the nurses, however, ran 
uh, uh, through across uh, uh, where the IV was line was mm -hmm. and and knocked the needle out of this guy's arm. Now he didn't feel it. He was going. He was dead. His, he has mm -hmm. he was brain dead. He had no uh, gag reflex, and there was nothing. His body was not functioning at all in any sense. And so uh, the, Dr. Crandall got down on his hands and knees and crawled under the operating table to find the needle and clean it off and put it back in. They tried paddles to bring this guy back and the paddles weren't working. So a nurse tried to plug the paddles into other outlets in the room, thinking maybe there's something wrong with that outlet and tried four or five times. Eventually, they just they realized it was the paddles, not the outlets. And so uh, she left and went down to the to the uh, to the radiology uh, room and got some new paddles and brought it back and brought this guy back and they stabilized him. And uh, Dr. Crandall said that uh, he, we were all too tired and this guy was in no position to be operated on. So we just stabilized him and he went to sleep and we left. The next morning, I came in to do my rounds and uh, I went by his room, but I could didn't hear any movement. So I thought he was asleep and I decided just to not bother him. And he said, I walked past his room and all of a sudden I felt myself being lifted off the floor and my feet were dangling and somebody had a hold of my the back of my gown. And I and he said, you. SOB, why did you bring me back? Hmm. And I, Crandall said, well, if you'll let me down, maybe we can talk about it. So he did. And it was this guy. And uh, Crandall said, well, that when you I don't understand. That's my job. I was trying to save your life. He said, look, I was experiencing a peace and a joy like I've never experienced in my life. And I saw the whole darn thing from up on the ceiling. And I saw uh, I saw you crawling on the floor like a stuck pig, trying to find the, 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 uh, you know, the needle that went in my arm uh, th that the nurse had knocked out, and you finally put it back in. I saw the gal try different outlets, and she was trying to put the paddle. I saw all that, and then she went somewhere and got it, and and I, I was watching the whole. He described uh, the other doctor and what he looked like, and. And and he's and this guy eventually Crandall was, was did not know about these kind of things and it blew his mind and since then uh, he has continued to see this now what happened is this guy eventually met Christ and uh, he's in in pastoral ministry to the now so so I mean look Crandall could not make that up because there were other people in the room that saw this happen and they worked with him so if he were to publish a book on this. He would have to try to make sure nobody read it that, that worked at the center because they would all know he was lying through his teeth. This was publicly observed by the whole team, and it's just crazy. But it was hmm. a near-death experience that brought about his conversion. Some of them are hellish, like I said. Hmm. But that's super yeah. No, that's super cool, Dr. Mullen. And I love hearing stories like this. And it's so encouraging as we were talking about like earlier halfway through this interview about like hearing examples of like answered prayers, like near-death experiences and things like that. So it's really helpful. So what we're going to do now is go to a little bit of Q&A at the end for about 10 or 15 minutes. So we'll get through as many questions as we can, but we probably won't get through all of them. So first, Daniel Kelly has a good question here. That's what very helpful at this point of like the dialect. And it talks about this idea of like, 
would be interested how do you consider like the miraculous claims of other religions if there's time to explore that so obviously you know like maybe like muslims or hindus like they have their own like near-death experiences or um claim to experience miracles like how would you respond to that dr moreland yes thank you daniel great question i think first of all uh the, the what the evidence indicates is that the the sheer number and the evidential quality of miracles in the Christian community way overshadow the smaller amount of, of verifiable, incredible miracle claims in other religions. So uh, uh, if, if, if you want to do a comparison, they don't cancel each other out because the, 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 uh, the documentation, the evidential quality, and the sheer number and profundity of those that happen in the among believers around the world is, is not even close to those that are alleged to happen in other religions. Now, secondly, I would say that if you read uh, Jesus' teaching and even God's uh, treatment of, of Job, who is not Jewish, uh, that, that God, the God of the Bible is a being who who loves the world, and there will be times when he will you know, let the rain uh, pour on unbelievers' crops as well as unbelievers' crops. And there are also times when, through his sheer mercy and love, will will do something to uh, answer a prayer or perform a healing or a near-death experience to someone in, in order to give them an opportunity to re-examine their beliefs and respond if they choose to do so. Now, would, could, would that reinforce <clears throat> their belief in Islam, let's say? Well, I would trust that God would know when that would happen, and he wouldn't do that in those cases. <clears throat> he would only do that in cases where he might be able to help the suffering of a person or send a, 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 an alert to them that they need to re-examine their lives before God, because Romans says that through nature we know that God is personal and holy and we stand guilty before him. So these could help prompt somebody to think it through. If they don't, if they don't respond to these in that way, but they just dig their heels in, then this will become a basis for even greater judgment of those people because we are judged at the severity of our judgment is according to the light that we have received. And if somebody has something like this done by God and they reject it, it, it then that's not going to be a good thing. So that would be my, my answer. I'm, so not you committed, I'm not committed to the idea that these don't happen, but uh, I think they're few, much fewer in number and an evidential quality. So I was just wondering, like, so would you be willing to grant the possibility then that like maybe like a Muslim has some sort of supernatural experience, which like wouldn't it happen if like, say, like atheism is true, but maybe it's caused by like maybe like a demonic being or something like that? Would you allow for that? It, it could be, I would allow for a demonic uh, uh, agency. Yeah, I would. And I and I have in the book, uh, you know, four reasons how we know demons are real. This isn't just guesswork. These beings are real and it's beyond reasonable doubt that they're real. But yeah, I would grant that. But I would also uh, consider the, that God may very well, according to his own wisdom and providential understanding, <clears throat> out of a sheer mercy, not because they're his, they're his creatures, and not, they're, not his children, but his creatures, and he may do something loving 
and merciful for someone just because he's full of mercy. Uh, but but he would know uh, when that would be a wise thing to do and when it wouldn't. Mm, that's super helpful. So thank you. Um, a question from Harry Stark, which says, um, what would you say to people who use a naturalism of the gaps? We don't have a naturalistic ex explanation nowadays, but we'll get one in the future. So how would you respond to this kind of objection to um, like miracles or NDEs or where you want to take this? Well, any kind of gap explanation is problematic uh, from the get-go. Because if really the only reason that you are explaining something is to save your theory from falsification, and you don't have any other positive reasons for explaining it in light of your worldview or theory, then that is the classic definition of an ad hoc question-begging argument. Uh, Christians do not use a God of the gaps explanation. We only will appeal to God if there are positive reasons to think that God is responsible. And that's why the intelligent design movement, for example, doesn't just appeal to God to cover our ignorance. No, there has to, it has to satisfy the intelligent agent principle. And uh, there have to be positive reasons for thinking this was done by a person. So now if a naturalist... Uh, practices this and they have no additional reasons, then I would I would charge them with uh, with a uh, inappropriate ad hoc question begging uh, explanation. The other thing I would say would be that th that there are sometimes in principle difficulties for naturalism versus uh, the current state of our knowledge problems with naturalism. Now, let me illustrate this. There's sometimes a person may inappropriately appeal to God doing something because given the current state of what we know about this subject matter, uh, either the, 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 the theist is just appealing to ignorance because in principle that naturalism can explain that if we, if we try harder and get more information. At least it can do so in principle. Uh, all right. I think those are bad examples of appealing to God. However, there are cases where um, there is a limit to scientific explanation so that science in principle cannot explain this phenomenon, but a theistic explanation can. I'll illustrate this. Years ago, Richard Dawkins was on the Bill O'Reilly show on Fox News. And O'Reilly asked him, he said, well, what do you do with the beginning of the universe? What caused the universe to, to begin to exist? And Dawkins said, we're working on it. Now, what he meant was that this is a question that if you'll give us a little more time, we'll come up with a naturalistic explanation. So it was a promissory note. What Dawkins failed to realize is that scientific explanations can only work if you already have a universe. It, because scientific explanations explain transitions from one entity to another entity according to a law, statistical or deterministic, and an underlying model. So you have to have a gas that's got a certain pressure and temperature, let's say at a constant volume, if you're going to explain why heating it causes the pressure to rise, 
because that explanation will appeal to the ideal gas law and the model of the atomic theory of, of gases. But what science can't do is explain the coming into being from nothing because that is not a transition. It's a point action. It just occurs. And there's no there's nothing there to apply a law to. So the question of what science can do is infer from phenomena that the universe began to exist. They can do that, but they are incapable of giving an explanation for what caused it because that explanation is not a subsumable under scientific laws or models. You have to have an entity before you can even build a model or a law to explain its transition to another entity. Now, this is a case where Dawkins failed to realize that this is an in-principle problem with a naturalistic, scientific explanation, not, well, well, we're still working on it. Same thing's true with the origin of consciousness. This is not a matter of, of working harder. This is an in-principle problem because you can't get mind from matter by just rearranging matter. That's getting something out of nothing. And it is, it is in principle not possible. So uh, that's what I would say to the naturalist. I would try to take a look at what the issue was and realize that there are in principle limits to science. And this question falls outside their limits, or maybe it doesn't. I would want to make that on a case-by-case -case basis. That's super helpful. And one thing I thought of, Dr. Miller, when you were talking about this was in like Josh Rasmussen and Felipe Leon's dialogue book. I don't know if you've read that. Um, Felipe yeah. Leon, he's, um, he's, he's a chapter on like varieties of naturalism. And he talks about like conservative naturalism was just like the reductive materialism you're talking about, which has this like fundamental problem with like mind and matter and then like a, like a more moderate and a liberal naturalism. And I think it's helpful just thinking about like when people talk about naturalism, it also just means different things. And like some people will like that it would consider them naturalists will also grant like the fundamentality of like consciousness, which is just super interesting to me. Um, well, well, yeah. well let, let me correct you there, if I may. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, what a naturalist will do was will appeal to consciousness as an emergent property, but mm -hmm. it, they, they don't take it as fundamental. If a person takes consciousness to be fundamental, then they're panpsychists. Okay. And a panpsychist may not believe in God, but they don't classify themselves as naturalists in the full-blown sense because they see throughout history and even today they see themselves as opposed to naturalism, though they are naturalists in the sense they deny God's existence. So in that sense, you're right. But mm -hmm. I, I've given a major critique of <clears throat> immersion properties and, uh, and uh, you know, that I don't think there are any. But uh, any, anyway, so that's my quick answer to that. But yes, there are many kinds of naturalism. But I will tell you that in, in a simple guide to experience miracles, I, I would really like to know what a naturalist would say about these cases. Mm -hmm. yeah. they're, they're very, they're, they're hard to explain away. And there's an explanation that the sciences themselves use, namely mm -hmm. a personal agent acting. And, uh, and, and they satisfy that. Yeah. that's super helpful and when you're using your two criteria to discover like intelligibility behind certain actions it's super helpful because it, it just helps you like discern these things much more clearly so we'll do one more question dr moreland from trinity radio which isn't directly related but it's an interesting question from braxton he says braxton hunter says why doesn't dr moreland who's a huge influence on me um debate more so it's just an interesting question i don't know if you want to respond yes to well i've done i don't know 25 to 30 debates in my career 
uh, and I've done, <laughs> you know, a couple of years ago, I went to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and debated there, and I debated on on radio, one of the top atheist professors in the UK. So, uh, and I just recently did, uh, did a live lecture uh, to the lead, the top Shia seminary in Qom, Iran. Uh, some Muslims invited me, having read my work, to appear live and debate a Muslim scholar on, on artificial intelligence. And we debated for two hours and 15 minutes. I mean, it was a, it was a pretty long debate. So I, I do do them, but at, at, I have found that my ministry, um, I, I have, a, a, say, say, compared to Bill Craig, I have more of a pastoral side to me. And Bill is more of a, as a pure scholar but I would be more of a scholar pastor type. So some of the books I've written, like this one or, or Finding Quiet on Anxiety, uh, preoccupy my time. And I have found that my time is better spent by giving lectures and by writing and nurturing my students, because I do spend a lot of time nurturing the students who come here to study, whereas Bill is a free, you know, free agent. <laughs> he, uh, so uh, it's, a, it's a choice of priority, really. I've, d I've done a number of them, but uh, I, and I still do them now and then, but it's, it's, it's more beneficial to me, especially at my age, because I have some things I want to get out and print before I die. And mm -hmm. uh, I'm kind of working on those. So that, that's, that's basically the answer. Yeah, no, that's super helpful. Thanks. So we're at the end of our interview. So Dr. Orland, Dr. Orland, wow. Dr. Moreland, thank you so much for joining me. It's been such a fun conversation. Um, so grateful. Do you have any like last thoughts or things you want to say before we wrap up here? Well, I really urge my brothers and sisters who are watching this to give me a chance. Just give me a hearing. Please get the book and 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 be and give it a fair chance to to, to help you grow and to deepen your faith. And if you'll do that, I think that you will find the book is tremendously encouraging and strengthening, as well as the resources I list in the back. And Zach, I want to thank you for your ministry. You're doing a great job, buddy. And uh, it's wonderful to be with you, my friend. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on, Dr. Merlin. I encourage everyone to check out this book right here, A Simple Guide to Experience Miracles. Um, yeah, thank you so much for joining me. If you're new to the channel and things like this, I always encourage you to subscribe, leave a like, and all that fun stuff. And that's it for today. Thank you so much. Wish you the best, and we'll see you next time. God bless.